recently, and one of the preachers there commented that the great Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, very much disliked it when people came up and said good morning because he thought it took away from the, the gravity, the authority of the word. Uh, and I don't want to do that. I respect Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, and I respect the, the word very much, uh, but I respect you very much too. I want to make sure you're greeted well. So, because we respect the word, uh, I would invite you to all open up to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 21 through 31 today. If you don't have a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can find this passage on page 974 in the Bibles under the seats. Again, that's page 974. And if you don't own a Bible, it would be our joy for you to take that Bible home today. We love to give all sorts of kinds of books away at this church. Uh, but especially, this is our favorite book to, to, to give away because it contains the words of life uh, to lead us in salvation through Jesus Christ. I'm astounded. I am astounded, Paul says at the beginning of this letter. And it's a great way to uh, sum up his attitude in most of this letter to the church in Galatia. He cannot believe that this church that he shared the gospel with, and which was once enthralled with both the gospel and with him even, uh, has now tossed both aside. The tricky part in their abandoning the gospel is that it's subtle. They're still meeting. They still talk and sing about Christ Jesus. But something, something has changed. Somewhere along the line, faith took a back seat and the law of Moses took over. You might say, what's so wrong with that? As long as they're still fearing God, isn't that all what it's, what it's all about? Just believing in some higher power? But the problem with that is that when faith takes a back seat, so does Christ. But more than that, as I hope we'll see today, going back to the law for security doesn't really just push Jesus to the back seat. It's like getting out of your, your nice, new, dependable Lexus that you know will get you where you need to go, and instead getting into your 1974 Pinto. Uh, it's not only subjectively a bad idea, it's an objectively deadly choice if you continue in that way. You're never going to make it a, on a long drive in a Pinto. I don't know if you know what a Pinto was, but it was, it was, it was, a, it was a very bad car. No offense to Fords out there, David, Dave, I'm, I, I'm not trying to knock Fords. Uh, but in, in the same way, you're not going to make it on a difficult journey to the New Jerusalem being under the law and slavery. Paul has explained that a person is proven a transgressor when he or she tears down the gospel of grace through faith alone and goes back to the law. Without faith, one is without Christ and without hope. Paul has explained this in almost every theological way so far. And now, he's, as he's continuing, he says, Aha, I've got the perfect illustration, one that's going to use the law to show these people what sort of bondage they're putting themselves into by going back to the law in the way that they are. So let's read together Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So what does the scripture, but what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's go to the Lord to ask for understanding of such important and eternal things. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I am like other men, uh, that you have uh, let uh, people like me uh, into this pulpit to come and speak uh, of your word, to speak not only of the, the, the glory of you, but though the way that you condescend to be with us, to love us, to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that you would give us understanding so that we can follow you rightly, that we can follow you in true freedom today. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Tell me. Paul continues pointedly confronting the people in Galatia who are bent on being under the law. He brings an illustration forward straight out of the law, too. Straight out of the life of Abraham, even. Now, this is important to note because uh, maybe not everyone realizes this. The law to Paul is not merely the thou shalts and thou shalt nots in Scripture. He's talking about everything written by Moses, the first five books in the Bible. Uh, now, Paul has never actually distanced himself from the, from the Scriptures, from the law. It's important to note in, as we're reading Galatians. Uh, throughout this whole letter, he's been trying to convince the believers in Galatia that he is actually in step with what the law was supposed to do. The law was supposed to always be leading people to know the knowledge that there needs to be something to complete it. It's not an end in itself. It couldn't perfect anyone. God's promise to Abraham had not been fulfilled yet uh, as people were under the law. God's true people were always supposed to be saying, I, I have faith, but I keep feeling like my life should be different. I feel like something's missing, that the point of the law is, is showing me something that I, I'm missing. But then Christ came, and all the promises of Abraham and to Abraham and, uh, and really to all of Israel in the Old Testament were fulfilled in his life, his death, his resurrection, and right, his, not, his current reigning and session. People were supposed to hear about Christ as Paul preached him in the gospel and go, yes, that's what I've been looking for in the law. He is the one who will save me and make me clean. He is the one who will mark me off as special to God. This is what the Galatians were taught, but someone or some people had come to spy out their freedom. So Paul looks back into the law again and says, here's a perfect picture of slavery and freedom. And I think you want to be on the side of freedom. And so he tells everyone, listen, listen to the law. And you will see that you do not want to be under it, but instead you want to live it in a fulfilled way in Christ by the Spirit. I see three points in this passage uh, that Paul lists from the Old Testament from different areas. 
from the law, and, he, and he's drawing our attention to listen to them, to hear with clear understanding. So first up is listen. There's two options. Second is listen. There's rejoicing and freedom. And third, and finally, we'll, we'll see, listen, there's a choice. Now, let's begin in our first example. Listen, there's two options. Paul is giving an allegory here to show the two options for how to live, in slavery or in freedom. Now, when he says he's looking at this story allegorically, he's not saying that this event didn't happen. He believed that Abraham was a real man, that these things actually occurred. But he's also not saying that the reason that this event was recorded by Moses was to teach what Paul's point is here. The point that Paul is, is doing, the reason that he's using this allegorically, is to present a familiar story that everyone there would know, and to present a, a familiar dichotomy, slavery and freedom, to, to help the Galatians think about what they are at, what they are at, where they are at in relation to the promises of God. Obviously, the story was very familiar to the Christians in Galatia, but I don't want to assume that everyone knows that, uh, knows who these people are, especially Sarah and Hagar. You might know that Abraham was brought from his land, a land where idols were worshipped, and he likely worshipped idols, and he was brought instead to the land of Canaan and was promised there by God that he would inherit that land that his descendants also would be more than the stars of the sea, and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham believed that promise, and he was counted righteousness. Good, so far, right? He believed God. He's righteous. But right after that in the narrative, in Genesis uh, 16, uh, we see Abraham's faith falter a little bit. He and Sarah try to accomplish the promise through doing something that makes sense, it's culturally normal. It seems to work. But the problem is that the fulfillment that they think they are seeing in here is, is only a form of fulfillment. The substance of the promise isn't anywhere in view in their minds. You can read the whole situation in Genesis 16 later today, but to summarize, what happens is that since Sarah, Abraham's wife, is getting older and hasn't had a kid yet, she says, hey, Abraham, I'm not getting any younger, but I have this young slave from Egypt, why don't you have a child with her, and that'll count as both of our children, as our child, and then it'll be our offspring, we'll have a legacy, it'll be sealed, God's promise will be fulfilled. Sounds perfect. And so Ishmael is, is conceived in the womb of Hagar instead, and everyone breathes a sigh of relief for a little bit. But that hope doesn't last very long, because the usual drama that you, might, that you would think might happen in this kind of situation does happen, and ultimately God makes it certain in the next chapter, chapter 17, no, but Sarah, your wife, will shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So in the end, we have two sons, one a slave, Ishmael, and one of the, of the flesh, uh, who is also Ishmael, and another uh, free and of the promise, who is Isaac. So let me say that again. And if you take notes, it might be good to write them down in two lines. We got on the top line, we have a, a son who is a slave and from the flesh. And then second, we have a son who is free and of the promise. And then after that, Paul draws in more of Israel's history and adds to this allegory. 
He says that the sun and slavery corresponds to Mount Sinai. And add to that, that line that you, if you just uh, wrote that out, add to that line on the top, uh, Mount Sinai. This is really a, a crazy reversal for the pretty Israelites, really, because no one at Mount Sinai thought, uh, as Moses was giving the law and pronouncing the blessings, that no one thought, oh, now we're identifying with Hagar and, of Egypt and Ishmael. No, quite the opposite. They thought that they, they were uh, identifying and said with Sarah and with Isaac and with Abraham. Uh, they were free from Egypt, and they, uh, were, they were excited to be inheritors of the promise that God had given to Abraham. And so they were, actually, if they truly had Abraham's faith. But what happened eventually, and not too long for, for many people, is that people started identifying themselves more by their allegiance to the rules found in the law rather than in the faith that Abraham had. And so they cut themselves off from Abraham's seed by doing that. They should have done both without neglecting the first. Now we have two sorts of ways of living by the flesh. The one being sneakier than the other. You see, when you hear the word living by the, or when you hear the phrase living by the flesh, you probably think of the, the list that Paul has in chapter 5 of Galatians. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you're probably like, yeah, that's my non-religious friends. They don't care at all about what God thinks which is true, but it's easy to ignore that and to think that you are free from the flesh, but you're really just enslaved as your unreligious neighbor is. Can you look at what we, can you, can you look at what we know about the Jewish people uh, of Jesus' day uh, and of, of Paul's day right there and the people who are trying to live like the Jewish people in the church and say that they weren't marked by these fleshly impulses, these, these infightings, these trying these deceptions, trying to get their way and get a following around them. You see, we often put faith on a line, and it's in the middle of that line. And on one side is legalism. And then as you go on the other side, the other direction, we usually say then you have uh, reckless living or antinomianism, if you want the, the fancy word. Uh, but the problem with thinking about it that way is that it actually is a circle, with faith on the top, and as you get further away, if you, as you swerve more from faith in either direction, you're going more towards the bottom in the same place, living according to the flesh in the way that you have chosen to justify yourself with Christ, without Christ. Let me say that again. It, the, the end point of all swerving away from faith, it gets you to the same point, trying to justify yourself in the way that you have chosen. As we leave faith, we drift towards what we want, whether that's more rules or less, so that we get this sense of control. Everything is going according to my plan, we want to say. I am like God. And that is not a great place to be, because in the end, it controls you. It enslaves you. The reason Sinai is a bad word in, in Galatians is not, is, is not because... Uh, is, is now because it represents the people who are so devoted to that, to that stated rule uh, that they, they can do without Christ. 
Christ came, uh, and he gave a little boost, some of them might say. Maybe a good example. The people uh, who were trying to swerve the Galatians might be, be trying to tell them. Uh, maybe, maybe Christ was the best iteration of what it means to be a follower of the law, but we could have been fine without him and without his coming because we can follow the law ourselves. The law didn't necessitate his coming, they might say. But this contrasts with the freedom of living as sons and inheritors of God by his spirit, which Paul says Christians are at the beginning of chapter 4. Verse 4, you can see just a little bit uh, behind. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so our aim is to live in Christ as those who are free to enjoy God's gifts in the way that he has created them to be enjoyed. But the law is not meant to make us right with him, and the laws are not meant to be a legal code for a Christian, for a Christian society right now. I was reminded this morning in our morning devotionals uh, by Paul Tripp that there is a danger in parenting to teach your kids at the gospel, uh, it, to teach the kids your gospel, but in your discipline to focus on them conforming to an outward righteousness without needing a heart changed by God. We just want our kids to conform to biblical standards, sometimes more than we want them to know Christ. You know, as long as they're not, you know, doing crazy things, then they're not an embarrassment to me, and that's what I care about most. You might, we might be tempted to, to think, I know that, I don't, I'm not a parent myself, but I know that that's something I would be tempted to. I think we do the same thing with our friends and maybe our spouses as well, both Christian and non-Christian. Uh, when, we're, when we're giving them counsel for their battles with sin or their weariness, do we point them to Christ or do uh, we give them just steps to feel better? Uh, if someone comes and confesses sin to you, do you tell them that they really need to get it together or do you tell them to read Psalm 51 instead and, and to be reconciled with God, that, to get your heart right first through Christ, to be reconciled by Christ's blood alone and he, that he would restore you? The law is not meant to make us right with God, and it's not meant to be a legal code, but is to be a guide to, for us to Christ and faith in him, working through love. That is why Paul adds to this by saying that this fleshly Mount Sinai and slavery corresponds also to the present Jerusalem. You can also add that to your top line. Uh, and he's talking about the, the present Jerusalem in his day. The Jewish people in Jesus' day were so tied to Sinai's curse that they missed the fulfillment of Sinai. The God who reveals himself, not only from a mountain, but also speaks from heaven. And they ignored that. They, they paid so much attention to that mountain, the voice from the mountain, that they ignored the one who spoke from heaven, who is the same God in reality. And because of that, they lived according to the flesh in Jesus' day. They satisfied their idolatry, their enmity, their strife, their fits of anger, their rivalries, and envy by demanding Christ's death on the cross. This is quite a condemnation, but we have not reached judgment day, so it is not a final condemnation yet. For there is a Jerusalem that is above, that is the substance to which the law and the earthly Jerusalem pointed to. So therefore, listen, point two, there's rejoicing and freedom. Again, listen, there is rejoicing and freedom. Look at verses 26 and 27. 
but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The way according to the promise takes waiting. It takes self-denial. It takes faith. But there is rejoicing in it eventually. There is a joy that will certainly come to those who wait for it. For those who are children of the true, the heavenly Jerusalem. Though the way of slavery, the way of the flesh, may sometimes seem like an easier or a better way, there is good reason to wait for the promise. Just like there would have been good reason for Abraham and Sarah to wait for that promise. Though you may not feel like you have something flashy attached to your faith, like you're the barren one, the one who goes after the transom religion, they are the ones that are going to be the ones that end up being ashamed, not you. The ones who stick to the promise and wait for that promise to be fulfilled through thick and thin. They will be the ones to rejoice eventually. They will, are the ones who will be satisfied. The ones who live by the royal law of liberty, the, the law of Christ, will be the ones who, who give and experience mercy. The ones who live morally because they fear the rules will not actually love, but the ones who seek after God's ways, who seek after his righteousness because he loves them, are already free and will continue to enjoy the inheritance that comes from that freedom. But why does, call, why does Paul call us to rejoice now? How can we rejoice when it seems like the children of the flesh are so many and have such a great time? They have something to gather around, whether it's following the law or talking smack about people in the break room. What can we do? The answer comes before before the quotation that is, that Paul gives. Paul is not just quoting an old hymn here, but he's having the Galatians listen to more of the Old Testament, Isaiah 54 to be specific. And you math people can probably figure out that the chapter before 54 is 53, and that's a very significant passage related to our salvation. Isaiah 53 is a passage about God's suffering servant, a man despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, a man who would be stricken, smitten for God's people, by God's people as well, but for God's people, a man who we would assume was cursed by God for his own sins, uh, but in reality was being crushed for ours, who uh, took our curse so that we would not be cursed. Now we know for certain that this Isaiah was foreseeing the suffering of Jesus Christ. There's no denying it. Uh, both, I mean, you can read Isaiah 53 and read a crucifixion side by side and see, wow, that's very similar. Uh, we know that the early church, as we read in Acts, loved this, uh, this chapter and love how it pointed to Christ. Uh, it pointed to Christ who was not just a man, but a servant, a servant who was obedient in every way who fulfilled the law in every way by being an acceptable sacrifice, an obedient sacrifice to the Father, a man who could bring us to God because he was, is, and will be God. And therefore, Isaiah 53 does not end with his suffering, but instead with his satisfaction. The reward for his obedience will be an inheritance, righteousness, yes, and offspring. And so chapter 54 looks at the victory of Christ and calls God's people to rejoice because Christ has conquered. Though they deserve no inheritance, they have a rich one by being identified with Christ. 
Though they deserve to be barren, they have a family that will never disappear because they are in Christ's family, because we together are Christ's family. Though they have been, there has been shame, their shame will turn to shameless glory. And this comes not because of the will of the flesh, but because of God who has chosen, who has promised. Because the suffering son makes intercession for, he, that is, he prays for us sinners. Those of you who don't believe, have you ever dreamed of having an inheritance from God, ever having a gift for having to, living with God, the, the most glorious thing you could ever think of? To have something more than the pain and, and moral bankruptcy that is so common in this life, you know, on the progressive side, the conservative side, and everything in between. Isn't this passage giving a much better vision for life than from what you hear of the world? Do you really think that you're free when the main messages around you are follow exactly what the person at the top says right now, the person who's most popular, uh, no matter what, or else you're out? But in the end, they're also telling you that you're dead and that you're probably not going to, nothing's going to happen afterwards. Uh, and so there's really, not, life is really meaningless. Is that really the, the thing that will make you rejoice, that makes your heart sing? What gives these people their credentials to speak with authority on the weightiest things on earth and heaven? Why trust their ideas? They aren't rooted in anything but right now. This, this right here, this promise is rooted in the promises of God given to Abraham more than 2,000 years ago and confirmed through many, many years of seeing uh, God's promises you know, confirmed and answered again and again. You're welcome to make your own choice, of course, but I'm telling you that the gospel is a better deal than anything that has been or will be. Turn, turning from your own way and coming to Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So rejoice. Be identified with Christ. Follow what the law was pointing to. It was not pointing to a harsh legal system that would forever separate people, but on the creation of a group of redeemed ones from every nation, tongue, and tribe where righteousness dwells and punishment will one day never be necessary because people will not sin. For to follow the fulfilled law, do you see that Paul has been carefully showing us how the law is actually to be used? Do you see how Paul, uh, he, he's, he's keeping the principles of the law throughout this letters, but showing how they are different in Christ. Righteousness is always essential. He's not throwing away righteousness, but faith precedes and fuels it. Helping the poor among the community is still good, and now it is to be a priority uh, not of the Jewish people specifically, but of the church itself. Rejoicing is, is a right response to God, but it's in response to his work and not ours. The element of separation still exists, but it's on the basis of whether one has faith in Christ and not based on ceremony or dietary restrictions. To put it another way, the separation is between those who are in slavery and those who are free, rather than between those who are circumcised and those who are not. But those who are not free hate the rejoicing of those who are and will try to spy out that freedom, to take that freedom away from people. Therefore, Paul says, Thirdly, listen, there's a choice. Again, listen, there is a choice. See verses 29 through 31. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. When people are in spiritual slavery, they see someone else in spiritual freedom, and that, that makes, uh, they see someone else in spiritual freedom, they want to make that person a slave as well. Because they are jealous, and they're scared that they're wrong when they see that when they see us living in the freedom of the Spirit. Just to make an important side note, I'm, th- this is where the illustration breaks down a little bit. Uh, I'm not insinuating that in the cases of slavery throughout history, especially in American history, that, there, that people who were slaves wanted everyone to be slaves. Of course not. Uh, but we see here that people who couldn't trust only in Christ couldn't keep, them, couldn't keep that to themselves. They had to go and try to make converts. And that's what happens to the Galatians. They let some guy or guys come in and start teaching, well, it's great that you've, come, that you've begun to believe in God, uh, that you've come to, to see who Jesus is. That's great. Uh, but you're not fully right with God yet. Let, let me see how I can help you. But these foolish people aren't helping. In fact, Paul says, says that they're troubling the Galatians, that they are persecuting them. Now, now, see the grace in Paul's writing. You might hear his harsh tone and think that he's only, he's only being mean right now, that he's not being very loving. Uh, but of course he's stern, because he sees them being severed from Christ himself. But he's not writing them off. In fact, he's reminding them. He says, here's what you believed at first. Let's go back to that. So now they have a, and there's a grace in this, that they have a chance to reaffirm that belief. Notice the term we used here also. Paul is, he's identifying with them. He's saying, we're all children of the free woman. We're all together. They don't have your, your good at heart. They are trying to cut you off from Christ so that they can feel good about themselves and accomplish for getting a, a posse around them. So the Galatians have to choose. There's a choice. And thankfully, when they got this letter, they still had the option to choose. Are they going to identify with the children of the slave woman or of the free woman? And you still have the option too. An implication in this situation is Paul's call for them to do something about these false teachers. At the very least, they are to ignore them and not give them a voice in the church. Going back to the beginning in chapter 1, Paul is astonished that the Galatians have let this teaching go on so long and that they have begun to believe it. They should follow Paul's example back in Acts, when, people, when Paul was back at the church in Antioch, there were some people who came to the church and tried to preach the same exact thing. Uh, and Paul and Barnabas, they laid down the law right there. You know, uh, not the, the law of Moses, but they laid the law of grace down. They said, uh, they, they showed these people how they were wrong, both from the scripture and also from their experience of sharing the gospel with people among the Gentiles. Uh, and th- these people being saved without having to be circumcised, without having to follow the law of Moses in the, the way that the people of Israel had uh, back at Sinai. The Galatians had an added advantage because the church in Jerusalem had already given them counsel, and there wasn't supposed to be any added burden, uh, that there wasn't supposed to be this added burden on them. But still, they, they came into this, this trap set by these people. We too today face many challenges to the gospel, too many to reference right now, but we must continue to be able to guard ourselves, uh, to guard the gospel by studying the gospel. There's a time to study heresy and other false uh, doctrines, yes, but focusing on being a watchdog 
makes you more likely to ignore the gospel than, fo- than, than by focusing on the gospel. Because focusing on the gospel keeps you grounded in it and trains you to be able to recognize a forgery. And those who find themselves prone to argue with false teachers, thank you. Thank you for your zeal. But make sure you're fighting the right battles. Make sure that you're clear on the essentials of the gospel. Keep studying the gospel primarily. Make sure you're treating people with grace. Make sure that when you call out a teacher, it is actually an unbiblical teaching that you're, that you're calling out against and not just them butting against your preferences. Once you're sure of that, please, please do defend the gospel. We, we need that. We need people defending the gospel. We need people who love it uh, and want to make sure that people are not believing a false gospel and so being sent to hell. And this is a painful process, just as it was painful for Abraham to send out Hagar and Ishmael. This involves telling people, no, you can't teach here. It involves not pleasing people. It involves telling people that they actually aren't right with God sometimes, and they're going to hell. Sometimes it involves voting out a leader or other members of the church. But it is loving for the church because it protects it. And ultimately, it's loving to the person who is causing the problems because it indicates to them that they are not in step with the gospel and are not right with God. Additionally, Paul is telling the church at Galatia to do this. We, just like they, are accountable for our local body, not others immediately. Focus on your church first and protect the gospel there. There will, be, there will inevitably be spillover, of course, especially today in this, this high communication world as we interact with other Christians and churches. But the focus of our energies should be looking at the word together and making sure it's rightly divided in our pulpits, in our classes, and in our weekly times of opening the word together, whether that's a Bible study, a life group, or one-on-one discipleship. And finally, Paul says, live in freedom. We're children of the free woman, so don't submit to a yoke of slavery. There's a lot of ways these words can be twisted, so I want to be crystal clear. The way to believe the gospel is this. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. There are many implications for what it means to follow Christ, but to try to rely on anything but him will be detrimental and will rob his glory. Enjoy that freedom this week. You are not cursed. You are not a slave to sin or to penance. And you have a great inheritance with God's people to enjoy partially now and to look forward to when Christ returns. When you read the Old Testament, rejoice in the ways that uh, you learn God's heart and how to follow him and uh, by faith working through love. And, and as you rejoice in the ways that you see Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament and is continuing to, the law shows us God's working, his desire for justice, his care for the poor and needy, and many other things that we should care about. But it's not giving us a 613-step way to be right with God. It's giving us a one-step way, Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens uh, so that we might know who you are. And you have given us your word so that we might know who you are. Thank you for showing us who we are and who you are uh, and who we we are in relation to you. And thank you that we have a great inheritance, that we have a great relationship with you, that we are your sons and daughters, that we have a, a glorious inheritance in the gospel. God, help us to rejoice in that. Help us to live in freedom. It's, it's tricky uh, because 
There are many ways that we're, we're tempted to either go and live in a reckless way or live in a, a super conservative way that doesn't honor your grace. Uh, God, help us to choose your way. God, give us clarity as we read your word. Uh, give us clarity as we come together. Help us to encourage each other day by day to follow this gospel, this one true gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.